0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure. Season 4, An American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, returned from Turr. Finally home from Tur. Been on the road for the last couple of weeks, now returned to The nest, and uh, it's pleasant to be here despite the late October, early November humidity. Savannah has yet to fully cool off. The temperature has dropped, but you walk outside, you walk back in, you're sweating, kid. You're sweating. An enormous amount of maladies and infirmities plaguing me these days, and really, when I say that, I am wildly exaggerating. The main problem is I am racked with insomnia, and have been for some time now. It has to do, I think, with the constant travel, the changing of time zones, the uh, adrenaline rush of doing shows, and then your body gets out of whack, and now I'm here, and I've been home for two days. Both of those evenings, I have been unable to sleep. It has been horrendous, horrendous. I dislike it. Very much so. What happens is, I end up falling asleep around 3 or 3 30. I sleep for a few hours, I get up, but I get up too late then, you know, because the day's half over. By the time I get out of bed, it's terrible. And then, along with the insomnia, is uh, if you recall, when I was in Rome, and maybe you don't recall, but I lost my appetite, and that is that also has recurred. And along with that, if you recall, I got burpy. You know, when I lost my appetite, I got burpy. Well, I've been burpy lately too. So if you hear me belching and wheezing and moaning and coughing and gasping, you'll understand why. I am a human wreck. I am a shell of a human being. All of that being said, I'm in a fairly good mood and happy to be engaged with you again on this All Hallows Eve. I am recording on Halloween. And uh, when we were living in Connecticut... Uh, We never got any trick-or-treaters, but here in Savannah, we get some, not a lot, but some. This isn't a a prime trick-or-treating boulevard, the street on which I live, but we do get the occasional trick-or-treater, and I just returned from the supermarket that I walked to. We can walk to the supermarket here, which I like a lot. Picked up a couple bags of Twix, despite the fact that Martha said get one bag of candy. I got two because I panicked as soon as I picked up the first one because it felt a little light. And I like to be generous with the candy. When the kids come by, I don't want to hand them just one Twix. I want to give them three or four. You know, I want to give them handfuls. I want them to feel like, oh, look at that Jew on Gaston Street. Generous. Belying the stereotype. You know? My Judy isn't very much on my mind these days as Israel and Hamas are doing everything in their power to exterminate each other. It has been a rough couple of weeks. From the macro to the micro, macro being the war in the Middle East, and let's not forget the land war in Europe, both terrific wars, and of course the war in Yemen, another fabulous conflagration. That's the macro. The micro, again, is that I'm home and infirm. Also, in some physical distress, perhaps, The thin, fat body of Hester, also known as Esther, last episode, if you recall, Clyde found his sister's residence. He espied his mother on some shabby street, followed her, observed her, and then when her mother left the boarding house, knocked on the door, and there she was. And as predicted, Hester, also known as Esther, is knocked up she is with child she is living in penury and her husband james franco or the man she was intending to marry james franco is nowhere to be seen so that's where we left it off last time and i suspect uh, it's a good as good a place as any to pick it up in fact i'm going to go a step further and i'm going to say it's the best possible place to pick up our tale so let us resume chapter 13 in American tragedy. So I'll just read you the last last couple of sentences. Yet now he sensed quite clearly that she was not married. She was deserted, left in this miserable room, here alone. He saw it, felt it, understood it. And he thought at once that this was typical of all that seemed to occur in his family. Here he was, just getting a start, trying to be somebody and get along in the world and have a good time. And here was Esta, after her first venture in the direction of doing something for herself, coming to such a finish as this. It made him a little sick and resentful. Resentful, that's interesting. And it speaks to Clyde's moral fiber, does it not? Because the resentment must stem from the sense of obligation he feels to help his sister. So you go, well, that's, although he's resentful about it, you got to think, well, that's good that he, he feels that way. He's willing to open a charitable hand and offer it to her. It sounds like that's what the resentment is based on. And also, perhaps the resentment is something akin to if Icarus had siblings. You know what I mean? Like Daedalus and Icarus, they go up, Icarus gets too close to the sun, he burns, his wings melt, he falls to the ground, he dies. All right, so let's say that's Hester, also known as Esther. Well, if Icarus had some siblings, they would look at that and they would say, gee, maybe it's not safe to reach for more, to strive for greater heights. And there's Clyde, striving for greater heights, looking at Icarus and the melted wings and thinking, God damn, can't anything work out? And I'm very familiar with those kinds of resentful feelings, mostly regarding myself, not my siblings. How long have you been back, Esther? He repeated, dubiously, scarcely knowing just what to say now, for now that he was here, and she was... As she was, he began to scent expense, trouble, distress, and to wish almost that he had not been so curious. Why need he have been? It could only mean that he must help. Well, that's what I just said. He must help. There's that resentment percolating up, like the coffee at the Green Davidson, served fresh from a samovar. Oh, not so very long, Clyde. About a month now, I guess. Not more than that. I thought so. I saw you up on 11th near Baltimore about a month ago, didn't I? Sure I did, he added, a little less joyously. No, well, I didn't really, I, I need to change my tone. Look, sometimes you don't get the performance note until after you've done the performance. You know, if the director had said, you know, maybe you cut down on the joyousness, I would have had a better line reading. Let's try it again. I thought, I, I thought so. I saw you up on 11th near Baltimore about a month ago, didn't I? Sure I did. Oh yeah, that was much better. Yeah, that was much better. Good job, Michael. You know, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna complain about the resentment, you gotta give credit where credit is due, and that was a good line reading. Uh, a change that Esther noted. At the same time, she nodded her head affirmatively. I knew I did. I I told Ma so at the time, but she didn't seem to think so. She wasn't as surprised as I thought she would be, though. I know why now. She acted as though she didn't want me to tell her about it either. But I knew I wasn't wrong. He stared at Esther, oddly, quite proud of his prescience in this case. Yeah, as proud as I was in my prescience in knowing that she is knocked up. He paused, though, not knowing quite what else to say and wondering whether what he had just said was of any sense or import. It didn't seem to suggest any real aid for her. And she not quite knowing how to pass over the nature of her condition or to confess it either, was puzzled what to say. Something had to be done, for Clyde could see for himself that her predicament was dreadful. She could scarcely bear the look of his inquiring eyes, and more to extricate herself than her mother, she finally observed poor Mama. You mustn't think it strange of her, Clyde, she doesn't know what to do, you see, Really, it's all my fault, of course. If I hadn't run away, I wouldn't have caused her all this trouble. She has so little to do with, and she's always had such a hard time. She turned her back to him suddenly, and her shoulders began to tremble and her sides to heave. She put her hands to her face and bent her head low, and then he knew that she was silently crying. Well, Clyde, you know, you're proud of your prescience. paragraph before, but when she turns her back and her shoulders start heaving, you don't know she's crying, you big dummy? Aw, come now, sis, exclaimed Clyde, drawing near to her instantly and feeling intensely sorry for her at the moment. What's the matter? What do you want to cry for? Didn't that man that you went away with marry you? She shook her head negatively and sobbed the more. And in that instant, there came to Clyde the real psychological as well as sociological and biological import of his sister's condition. She was in trouble, pregnant, and with no money and no husband. That was why his mother had been looking for a room. That was why she had tried to borrow a hundred dollars from him. She was ashamed of Esther and her condition. She was ashamed of not only what people outside the family would think, but of what he and Julia and Frank might think. The effect of Esther's condition upon them, perhaps, because it was not right, unmoral, as people saw it. And for that reason, she'd been trying to conceal it, telling stories about it, a most amazing and difficult thing for her, no doubt. And yet, because of poor luck, she hadn't succeeded very well. You know, you gotta hand it to Dreiser, I'm going to hand it to, I'm going to hand it to Dreiser. He does understand the human condition. Although he seems to think his readers are not quite as smart as we are, because he's, you know, sort of unspooling this story a little bit more slowly than he need to. I mean, we understood, all of us. That was why his mother had been looking for a room. That is why she had tried to borrow $100 from him. Like, we're we're ahead of Clyde here, and we don't need to be. We should be discovering things along with Clyde. For us to be smarter than Clyde doesn't do the story a lot of good, I think, you know? Clyde's a bright young kid. He's a whippersnapper. He got himself that job at the Sunday Fountain and then over at the Green Davidson all on his own accord. And he's been doing well at work. He's a smart kid. So let's give him some credit and give the reader some credit, too. We can cut that. We know better. And now he was again confused and puzzled, not only by his sister's condition and what it meant to him and the other members of the family here in Kansas City, but also by his mother's disturbed and somewhat unmoral attitude in regard to deception in this instant. She had evaded, if not actually deceived him in regard to all this, for she knew Esther was here all the time. At the same time, He was not inclined to be too unsympathetic in that respect toward her. Far from it. For such deception, in such an instance, had to be, no doubt, even where people were as religious and truthful as his mother. Or so he thought. You couldn't just let people know. (laughs) He couldn't couldn't just let people know your daughter's pregnant. My God, what would they think? It is a funny thing, the, the shame associated with pregnancy and unmarried pregnancy less so these days of course but back then it almost it almost felt like the diagnosis of some horrible disease well at the end of it you're going to get a cute little baby a baby and we understand that you know social mores being what they are It may make things more difficult for Hester, also known as Esther, but she's got her family behind her, at least her mother, no doubt her father as well, and eventually her siblings. Clyde seems not particularly inclined to look down on her. He merely is observing with a kind of clinical distance that she is in trouble. And with a more sympathetic tug at the heart, he knows he must help. What would they think? What would they say about her and him? wasn't the general state of his family low enough as it was? And so, now he stood, staring and puzzled, the while, Esther cried. And she, realizing that he was puzzled and ashamed, because of her, cried the more. That's a weird way to write that. And she, realizing... It should be... So there's no comma there. It seems like there needs to be a comma. And she, comma, realizing that he was puzzled and ashamed, comma, because of her, comma, cried the more. Although I might write it as, and she cried the more, realizing that he was puzzled and ashamed because of her. I think that's a better way to say it. Okay, I'm going to rewrite that. All right, just scratching this out and scratching it back in. Very good. All right, let's take a little break as I rewrite classic works of literature and edit them out loud. Back in a moment on Obscure. Back on Obscure as I... Do my imperious best to rewrite classic literature. I'm rather like the Emperor in the movie uh, Amadeus, who confronts Mozart after his performance. Mozart says, Emperor, what did you think? The Emperor thinks about it for a moment and says it was it's very good, but I think there were too many notes. And Tom Hulse says, Amadeus says, too many notes, because it is a stupid thing to say. Gee, oh, getting back into the book here, gee, that is tough, said Clyde, troubled, and yet fairly sympathetic after a time. You wouldn't have run away with him unless you cared for him, though, would you? He was thinking of himself and Hortense Briggs. I'm sorry for yes, sure, I am, but it won't do you any good to cry about it, now will it? There's lots of other fellows in the world besides him. You'll come out of it all right. Oh, I know, sobbed Esther, but I've been so foolish. And I've had such a hard time. And now I've brought all this trouble on Mama and all of you. She choked and hushed a moment. He went off and left me in a hotel in Pittsburgh without any money, she added. And if it hadn't been for Mama, I don't know what I would have done. She sent me $100 when I wrote her. I worked for a while in a restaurant as long as I could. I didn't want to write home and say that he had left me. I was ashamed to, but I didn't know what else to do, there toward the last when I began feeling so bad. She began to cry again, and Clyde, realizing all that his mother had done and sought to do to assist her, felt almost as sorry now for his mother as he did for Esther. More so, for Esther had her mother to look after her, and his mother had almost no one to help her. I can't work yet because I won't be able to for a while, she went on. And Mama doesn't want me to come home now because she doesn't want Julia or Frank or you to know. And that's right, too, I know, of course it is. And she hasn't got anything, and I haven't, and I get so lonely here sometimes. Her eyes filled and she began to choke again. And I've been so foolish. Yes, you have, Hester, also known as Esther. Yes, you have. But we don't necessarily fault you for it. We understand foolishness, do we not, dear listener? We understand what it is like to grow up in difficult circumstances, in circumstances of poverty and in stricture. That does not appeal to us. We understand what it is like to be an adolescent or a young adult and filled with longings and yearnings. And to have some handsome actor bat his long eyelashes at you and whisper sweet nothings into your ear. Well, one can understand how one's petticoats could get ruffled under such circumstances. So she left. Was it foolish? It was. Do we understand it? Of course we do, and we forgive her. But let me tell you something, if I ever catch that 'er ne'er-do-well James Franco, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind and maybe a knuckle sandwich for what he did to this poor gal. And Clyde felt for the moment as though he could cry too, for life was so strange, so hard at times. See how it had treated him all these years. Well, I guess it's really, see how it had treated him all these years. He had done nothing until recently and always wanted to run away. But Esther had done so and see what had befallen her. And somehow he recalled her between the tall walls of the big buildings here in the business district, sitting at his father's little street organ and singing and looking so innocent and good. Gee, life was tough. What a rough world it was anyhow. How queer things Went. Yes, indeed. Things are tough. The world is a difficult place. And here you are in 1925, not even understanding that in four short years, Clyde, the world, as you know, it will be turned upside down again as the Great Depression falls over the globe. And while you may see yourselves as impoverished now, you will soon see your neighbors under the same circumstances. Maybe, in a weird way, that will make you feel better. You have been poor. You know poverty. Those around you have not trucked down those streets before, and so you will have some slight advantage over them, will you not? Perhaps. He looked at her and the room, and finally telling her that she wouldn't be left alone and that he would come again, only she mustn't tell his mother he had been there, in that if she needed anything, she could call on him. Although he wasn't making so very much either. And then went out. So that's kind of a little funny turn here. So the mother has told, obviously doesn't want anybody to know, doesn't want Esther to tell anybody of her whereabouts, and isn't telling anybody of her whereabouts. Now Clyde has found her, and is telling Esther, and also don't tell mother, that I know your whereabouts. Well, why not? Seems to me that uh, it would be helpful for the mother and Clyde to be in on this little secret together. They could be of more use to Hester in that manner, but fair enough. He doesn't want her to know. And also, he couldn't help but throw in that lie that he wasn't making so very much either. He is hedging against the demands that surely... We'll follow. We understand that. And then walking toward the hotel to go to work, he kept dwelling on the thought of how miserable it all was, how sorry he was that he had followed his mother, for then he might not have known. But even so, it would have come out. His mother could not have concealed it from him indefinitely. She would have asked for more money eventually, maybe. But what a dog that man was to go off and leave his sister in a big strange city without a dime. He puzzled, thinking now of the girl who'd been deserted in the Green Davidson some months before with a room and board bill unpaid. And how comic it had seemed to him and the other boys at the time, highly colored, with a sensual interest in it. But this? Now this was his own sister, A man had thought so little of his sister as that. And yet, try as he would, he could no longer think that it was as terrible as when he heard her crying in the room. Here was this brisk, bright city about him, running with people and effort, and this gay hotel in which he worked. That was not so bad. Besides, there was his own love affair, hortense, and pleasures. There must be some way out for Esther. She would get well again and be all right. But to think of his being part of a family that was always so poor and so little thought of that things like this could happen to it, one thing and another. Like street preaching, not being able to pay the rent at times, his father selling rugs and clocks for a living on the streets. Esther running away and coming to an end like this. Gee. End of chapter 13, end of chapter 13, ends with G, <laughs> which I rather like. There is something innocent about Clyde, is there not? He does not know the ways in which the world will wring you out. Well, he's starting to get a picture of it, is, is he not? And we are starting to get some contours of the shape of this American tragedy, I've got about five minutes left, so I will continue here. We'll start chapter fourteen. The result of all of this on Clyde was to cause him to think more specifically on the problem of the sexes than he had ever had than he ever had before, and by no means in an orthodox way. For a while he condemned his sister's lover for thus ruthlessly deserting her, still he was not willing to hold her entirely blameless by any means. She had gone off with him. She now learned from her. He had been in the city for a week the year before she ran away with him. And it was then that he had introduced himself to her. Wait, what? She had gone off with him. And as he now learned from her, he'd been in the city for a week the year before she ran away with him. And it was then that he had introduced himself to her. Oh, so he knew her the year before. The following year when he returned for two weeks, it was she who looked him up. Or so Clyde suspected, at any rate, and in view of his own interest in and mood regarding Hortense Briggs, it was not for him to say that there was anything wrong with the sex relation in itself. Okay, fair enough. So, what's unorthodox to the ear? of somebody in 1925, might not be as unorthodox to us. He is uttering a fairly progressive stance here. He's saying, in essence, Hortense had her own agency. Hortense chose to seek out James Franco. Hortense and he chose to run away, and surely she acquiesced to the sexual relation, which resulted in her condition. As for Hortense, he sees no problem with the act, the sexual act itself, merely in the circumstances under which that act might take place. He's no hypocrite, really. I mean, he's been with a hooker. Now he's pursuing Hortense. He sees the trouble that these relations can cause, and in puzzling through it, determines... That there is nothing immoral in sexual Congress, merely in the way we treat each other, and I agree. Rather, as he saw it now, the difficulty lay not in the deed itself, but in the consequences which followed upon not thinking or not knowing. Well, that's what I just said. I mean, Dreiser's saying it better than me, but he had time to write it down and rewrite it and get it shaped. I'm just, I'm just going off the dome. For had Esther known more of the man in whom she was interested, more of what such a relationship with him meant, she would not be in her present pathetic plight. Some unusual alliteration from Dreiser. Certainly such girls as Hortense Briggs, Greta, and Louise would never have allowed themselves to be put in any such position as Esther, or would they? They were too shrewd, and by contrast with them in his mind, at least at this time, she suffered. She ought, as he sought, to have been able to manage better. And so, by degrees, his attitude toward her hardened in some measure, though his feeling was not one of indifference either. Well, Clyde, here you've here I'm, I, I'm afraid you've let your thoughts lead you astray. Because ultimately what you're doing is victim-blaming. And yes, she has culpability in her own circumstances, but she did not leave herself... It was her 'er ne'er-do-well actor boyfriend who left her. She had been misled. She had been told and promised certain things which did not come to pass. And therefore, she is undoubtedly the victim in these circumstances. And for your heart to hearten towards her, though I understand the sentiment feels counterproductive and a bit cruel. But the one influence that was affecting and troubling and changing him now was his infatuation for Hortense Briggs, Than which no more agitating influence could have come to a youth of his years and temperament. She seemed, after his few contacts with her, to be really the perfect (laughs) realization of all that he had previously wished for in a girl, she was so bright, vain, engaging, and so truly pretty. Her eyes, as they seemed to him, had a kind of dancing fire in them. She had a most entrancing way of pursing and parting her lips, and at the same time looking straightly and indifferently before her, as though she were not thinking of him, which to him was both flame and fever. It caused him actually to feel weak and dizzy at times, cruelly seared in his veins with minute and wriggling threads of fire. And this could only be described as conscious lust, a torturesome and yet unescapable thing, which yet in her case he was unable to prosecute beyond embracing and kissing, a form of reserve and respect in regard to her which she really resented in the very youths in whom she sought to inspire it. The type of boy for whom she really cared and was always seeking was one who could sweep away all such pseudo-ingenuousness and superiorities in her and force her, even against herself, to yield to him. Well, that's, uh, that's quite a statement and an interesting writerly thing that he does there. And... Let's go back to the beginning of that paragraph, because I think this is interesting. He is condemning Hester for her lack of discernment and judgment regarding the bow that she absconded with, and yet he does not uh, seem to have any better powers of discernment for himself. For we know that Hester has no interest in Clyde, and in fact, that uh, that is made evident in the last part of that paragraph. And so while he is pointing the finger at her, he is unable to point the finger at himself. He does not know in his foolishness that Hortense does not give a whit for him. I mean, she doesn't. So this is interesting, though, the writerly thing. So she, he, he, uh, all in this paragraph, Dreiser is describing Hortense... You know, through Clyde, so bright, vain, engaging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's through Clyde's eyes. But then he does this neat little thing here beyond embracing and kissing, a form of reserve and respect in regard to her. And then here we go. In the sentence, right here in the sentence, he changes the perspective which she really resented in the very youths in whom she sought to inspire it. So there's also something kind of cunning here about Hortense where she wants these boys to pursue her. She wants them to be in her grasp. She wants to reject them. And yet when she gets it, she resents them for acquiescing to her. And then we get this little... Nugget, the type of boy for whom she really cared and was always seeking, was one who could sweep away all such pseudo-ingenuousness and superiorities in her and force her, even against herself, to yield to him. You know, in the first paragraphs of this chapter, we talked about the orthodox versus unorthodox way of thinking of the problem between the sexes and we, a hundred years later, are thinking to ourselves, well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with a little sexual congress between two consenting adults now and again, right? We're thinking, yeah, that's what the whole sexual revolution was about. And yes, there were attendant problems with it. We understand, we also understand that human biology necessitates the sexual act. We are driven by it. We are compelled to act upon it. And so it is not the act itself which we need to frown upon, but the circumstances right. Okay. All of that, hundred years later, we look at and we go, yeah, I agree. But then <laughs> she <laughs> drives her, you know, teases out a rape fantasy from Hortense and we go, oh gee, uh, maybe that's not quite where we <laughs> were comfortable living these days. No doubt rape fantasies are common. I, don't, I have no experience with them and would not participate, I don't think, in anybody's great fantasy because that is such a profound turnoff for me that I don't think I could indulge that. That being said, we know that this is a kink people have, but to hear it expressed so baldly here and without any sort of sense of recrimination or question mark makes, makes me cringe a little bit. But again, this may be the mores of the time because for Hortense... To fully embrace and acknowledge her own sexuality means, in a sense, she, she has to be taken. You know what I mean? Because she can't, under the sort of uh, social strictures of the day, allow herself to be fully lascivious, fully lustful. She needs the man to come to her, to sweep away her disingenuousness and her air of pseudo superiority or whatever it is, and get down to brass tacks and said, girl, I'm going to fuck you. (laughs) Excuse the language. But you understand that, right? You understand the context here. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a little bit murky, the politics of this, but I'm I'm, going to set it aside and we can all contemplate that over the next few days or until you listen to the next episode whenever that may be. So we'll leave it there. Chapter 14 has commenced. And uh, you know, we're in a real pickle here between all these horny youths marinating in their own juices. We're in a pickle. On the one hand, we've got poor Hortense, also known as Esta. I mean, poor Hester, also known as Esta, knocked up in a rooming house somewhere with uh, hardly a pot to piss in. And on the other hand, you've got Clyde swinging around his new pocket watch, admiring his stick pin, chasing after Hortense's skirts and not seeing the problem, not seeing the contradiction, not seeing perhaps the hypocrisy, or maybe he's trying to wheedle his way through the hypocrisy to come out on the other side unscathed. I don't know if such a thing is possible. And then we've got Hortense stringing her bow along in exchange for chops at Frizzell's. And, you know, who'd turn down a couple of chops? Not me, friend. I can tell you that right now. Speaking of which, I gotta start dinner. i chicken thighs tonight with maybe some salad. Hopefully I'll have appetite for that. I do feel hungry, so thats that's a good sign. Alright, let's leave it there. We'll pick it up again on another tumultuous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lin. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren, We Rely On You, The Listeners for support so please go to patreon.com slash michael ian black sign up there's all kinds of fun stuff there's goodies you could join the book club where we get together we talk about the book that we're reading uh and it's just a fun community so you know head on over to patreon.com slash michael ian black and i will see you next time